Welcome to the Productivity Mastery Podcast, presented to you by myself, Stoyan Yankov, Productivity and Performance Coach, Keynote and TEDx Speaker, and co-author of the Perform Methodology, and the book, Perform, The Unsexy Truth About Startup Success. Join me on a journey to discover what some of the world's leading professionals do to be more productive, create peak performing teams, and build successful global companies. New episodes weekly. And now, enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to Productivity Mastery, the podcast that's bringing some of the most inspiring leaders from all across the globe, people who being there, done that, and I couldn't be more excited to welcome my guest today after a short summer holiday, a few weeks without the podcast. But now the wait was worth because I'm here with John Rennie. Is that how I pronounce it, John? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. There you go. John is the co-founder and president and CEO of Peak Demanding, a premier manufacturer of critical components for electrical utilities a real business, a real successful business. He's also a former U.S. Navy nu nuclear, nuclear submarine officer who made seven deployments during the end of the Cold War. Prior to starting Ping Demand, John led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies, a lot of leadership experience. He's also the author of three best-selling leadership books, I Have the Watch, All in the Same Boat, and... You have the watch. <laughs> he calls the popular deep leadership podcast. I had a bunch of conversations with him and I'm learning something new every time I talk to him. I listen to his one of his books, all in the same boat. And it's, it's filled with, everybody needs to get this book. It's filled with great leadership advice, practical advice coming from his experience being a nuclear submariner. And I'm uh, honored to welcome John Rennie. It's great to be here. I'm really excited. Um, you know, I had you on my show just a little bit ago, and uh, that'll run uh, this weekend. So, but uh, I really, really enjoy getting to meet you. And we talked about your book, and so now I guess I'm here, and uh, we get to we get to switch roles. So I get to be the interviewee this time, and I love it. I love that, man. I love these uh, podcast swaps. Um, I think it was uh, Patrick Flessner, another guest on the podcast, who. Who made the initial introduction i'm very grateful patrick if you're listening another guy who has a couple of great books <laughs> so yes. let's give him a bit yes. of credit the leadership house and fast scaling uh but not to confuse the books let's let's focus now on john <laughs> john rennie here today john let's let's start from the beginning how does one become a nuclear submariner what was your thoughts what was the motivation for you to decide to to take such an un unconventional role Mm. You know, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, you talk to a lot of people and they had, you know, childhood dreams of what they wanted to do when they grew up. And and a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of children have these dreams of being an astronaut or being a firefighter or a police officer or whatever that whatever strikes their fancy. And um, but most people don't ever do that. I mean, most people, those things change and they end up being an accountant or something different from what their dreams were. And for me, though, uh, I I had two grandfathers that were uh, in World War II, one in the Army, one in the Navy. 
And I grew up hearing their stories and their adventures from the things that they did throughout their life. And we were all from a small town in, in New England, the northeast of the United States. And people in my town, it was a blue collar town. And nobody really went anywhere and did anything. You, you, you were born there, you worked there, you died there. And that's pretty much what you do. My parents were born in the same town as I was born. My grandparents were born in the same town. But then I remember my grandfathers always had these stories of adventures and the things that they did. And I said to myself that, that that's something that I was interested in doing. And, um, and the more and more I read, you know, about the, in, you know, studying World War II, and I was always interested in it as a kid, but um, the submarines, the, what they did during World War II, especially the, the U.S. Navy after, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, we had a lot of our Navy was destroyed and the submarine force kind of held the line until we could get back on our feet again. And, I, you know, these exploits of these heroic submarine captains and crews just always resonated with me. I just, just always thought it was fascinating. It was sort of, you know, like, like uh, outer space in astronauts, you know, just you're in this vessel, everything around you wants to kill you and you're out there in space, right? And you have to survive. And I always thought the underwater, you know, warfare was like that. You're in this very uh, inhospitable environment, but yet you have this mission to accomplish. So early on when, even before I got into high school, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a submarine officer. I want to serve on, on, on submarines. And uh, so then it's, you know, a long process to figure out how do you you know, how do you get the grades? How do you get, you know, I mean, because, you know, I remember going to my my guidance counselor in uh, high school and I said, I want to be a nuclear submarine officer. And they said, OK, and you're the first person who ever said that. So so to, but to his credit, he he did the research and found out what it would take to do that. And he said, you got to be really good in math and science. You got to go to engineering school. And, you know, because you have to be a nuclear engineer, essentially, to get into this role. And uh, I, I didn't know what an engineer was. I didn't know. You know. I wasn't really strong in math and science at the time. But but that's what I had to do. I had to do all this work uh, to get into a good school and then um, eventually uh, get into um, the you know, I had to get well, I had to get a military scholarship to college. And then eventually you have to go like your junior year in college, you go to Washington, D.C. and you interview to get accepted into the submarine program. And you, you have to go meet with an admiral, you know, and you're just this junior guy and you have to meet with an admiral and you have to go through an interview process. But in the end, I got in and then uh, you went through a long process of being trained to be a a submariner, but eventually I reached my dream, which was to get on to the USS Tennessee. And I served for five years um, as a naval officer, did a bunch of different things, deployed seven times, um, just really enjoyed every aspect of it. So, uh, but yeah, that's so it was a childhood dream that uh, that came to fruition through really hard work, perseverance, uh, and just having, as Angela Duckworth calls, grit. You know, I needed grit to be able to, I had a passion for a long-term uh, dream that I had. And so it was just pass passion and perseverance got me to that point where I was able to achieve that childhood dream. And just for having a bit of a context, when did that happen and how old were you at the time? Oh, I was probably, you know, 12, 13 years old. <laughs> Yeah, it took a long time too. I mean, it, to to realize that dream was over ten years of work to get mm. to get there. And so, I think a lot of times we want instant gratification in life, but some of some of the hardest things we ever achieve in terms of success come from decades of work. And that was an example of it, uh, where it took me almost ten years to 
to go from this is what I want to do to actually doing it. This is what we spoke about at the other <laughs> podcast as well, that, uh, you know, success takes time and it's usually consistency. It's usually persistence, grit, um, and all these kind of success stories that we keep reading about. It's not that they are true, but we kind of like to feature only part of the story and, and, and sometimes paint a very twisted picture of what it really takes to achieve your dream. Um, and hopefully we can inspire more people, especially younger generation people coming into the world of work these days that they need to arm themselves with patience mm. and to let, let go of this, this urge for perfectionism that, I don't know, the next job needs to be a perfect job and, and things need to happen for me. I need to build this unicorn company in two years. It's like just the also so small. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me, when was that? Inter like, which year did that happen when you ended up actually getting the role? So I uh, I was commissioned as a naval officer in 1989 and then served for five years. I got out in 1994. Uh, so those are my five years. So it was sort of got to see the end of the Cold War happen. Um, you know, we went from, you know, the, the Atlantic Ocean was filled with Soviet ships and submarines. And by the end, there was nothing. And so it was just an interesting time to be there. Uh, to see that transition. And so part of me at that point in 1994, the Cold War sort of was over. I really was questioning, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I had spent at that point uh, two solid years of my life under the ocean and uh, in that five years. And I, I, I was questioning, like, what's next, you know? And so uh, because it really didn't seem like the, mis the mission had changed, obviously. And uh, you know, with the with the Cold War sort of ending, and that's when I decided to leave in '94, and uh, kind of went off and, and then into the corporate world at that point. I just wanna I just wanna dive into your years as a as a nuclear submariner, and, and especially the beginnings. You know, what was it like you entering, getting on board for the first time, and getting a a feel of, of, of the submarine. How, how was your feeling? Did you have any fears? Like if you remember, of course, it's been a, <laughs> quite some time ago. Oh yeah. I, of course, of course I do because it was very much, a, um, it, it's burned in my memory because it was such a, such a, an experience, you know, you train. So, you know, I was in what they call ROTC through college. It was called reserve officer training course. So you're, so I was going to, uh, I went to Worcester Polytech, which is an engineering school, but, and I had a military scholarship, four-year scholarship, but I also had to go to military classes in this. Uh, so I was studying, you know, everything about the Navy in school for four years, you know, learning leadership and, and naval architecture and history and all this. And then once I got my commission, then I spent another year and three months in training. So I was I had to go to a place called Nuclear Power School, which is really difficult for six months. Uh, and then I had to go to uh, what's called prototype, where you're actually operating a, a land based nuclear reactor for six months. And then you go to submarine school and then they send you to the fleet. So the Navy says you're ready to go to the fleet. And so I got my orders to go to the USS Tennessee. And I remember. I, uh, we were getting ready for deployment. And so I had to fly down. I had to fly down. I took a taxi from the airport uh, to the, the Navy base. 
And I showed up with, I was in my uniform and I had my sea bag because I knew we were being deployed. So I had my sea bag with everything I, I needed for the next three months uh, on, my, on my shoulder. And um, the USS Tennessee was in dry dock. So they were, they were, it was still being finishing up repairs, getting ready to go to the, go to sea. And so I came into this covered dry dock, very large, large building, if you can imagine. And uh, there's an Ohio class submarine out of the water. Uh, and then, you know, instantly you come in and there's just, it's, there's noise everywhere. So there's, you know, there's, there's drills and hammers, there's welding sparks. You're, you're hearing all this noise, people yelling, horns going off. And so there's all this, like, it's just an emotion. There's so much. It's like sensory overload when you walk around the corner and you see and then you see this massive submarine out of the water. And I thought to myself, I, you know, I really thought I was ready for this. I'd gone through really essentially five and a half years of training uh, to get to this day. <laughs> and when I got there, I realized, holy cow, I'm not ready for this. This is really difficult. This is really complex. This is really dangerous. Uh, and you know, you start having these self doubts, like, am I ready for this? Am I really, are they really going to let me be an officer, you know, on, on a, on a nuclear submarine, there's a crew of 155 and of that uh, 140 are sailors and there's only 15 officers. And I was going to be one of those 15 officers on board. And um, I, I really was questioning whether or not, you know, I was ready for that. And I think we often leaders, we get you know, young leaders get promoted into their first management role, right? And they're, they're just like that, like, I'm ready. And then you get there, you're like, I'm not ready. <laughs> you know, so it was one of those things, like, I was not ready for, for just the size, the scope, the complexity, the danger. Uh, it was just more than I really had imagined when you physically see it. So it was definitely overwhelming. And then it was interesting, I, um, I had an officer greet me. We, I, he told me where my rack was, my bed. I threw my sea bag on my bed and they said, we're going to take you to the engine room. You're going to meet your team. And I was the new reactor controls officer. So I was responsible for all the guys maintaining all of the um, electronic equipment around the reactor. And so I met my team for the first time. And what I learned was, is that uh, every one of the sailors had made, you know, multiple deployments they were uh, highly experienced, very talented. They were led by a senior enlisted chief petty officer that had been in the Navy as many years as I've been alive. And I was, but I was their boss. And so I was this young kid. And, and again, that's another situation that, that oftentimes leaders find themselves. They may not be, they might show up and they're the manager, but they may not be the oldest or the most experienced person in the room. So at that point, you have to say, well, how am I going to add value to this team not being the oldest and not being the most experienced? So that was my first chance to really learn leadership, especially as a young, um, inexperienced person getting, you know, being given, handed a team of highly capable, trained people doing a very dangerous thing. And we're talking about it operating a nuclear reactor at sea, uh, which is, you know, somewhat dangerous, <laughs> if you will. But I mean, the point is, is that I think uh, that was a really good training ground for me to learn leadership. And so, you know, uh, and, and, you know, you come in as from the bottom and you work your way up, you have to learn everything. Uh, and it's, and it's not an easy process. But I think that 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 really set a foundation for me for the rest of my career, for sure. And you have done many different things. Um, first of all, 
uh, as a submariner, but then afterwards in the industry, you're an entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur. Um, what would be your advice in such a situation to maybe somebody in such a position uh, that gets promoted as a manager or get hired mm -hmm. as a manager and they need to all of a sudden manage uh, a lot more capable and experienced people? What were some of your reflections and learnings that you can maybe share with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I talk to a lot of college students and um, especially I do I talk to grad students, MBA students a lot. And that's one of the we, we talk about this in that training program, because I think that's a big issue for them, because a lot of people come out, a lot of, you know, young, young uh, men and women come out of a business school and end up in a management role. And they're in that same exact position. They're the youngest, least experienced. And then suddenly they're in charge. So I think that's where there's a couple of things that help you be successful. One is uh, listen. I mean, that's a really big part is spend a lot of time listening uh, to the team, asking questions, uh, especially open-ended questions. Um, spend a lot of physical time with your team, observing what what the the personalities of the people, the the work that they do, the the, the challenges that they have. Um, and so, part of, you know, a lot of this is is really showing respect for those experienced professionals that you now have the opportunity to lead. So you're and you do that through engaging them in you know in good in good you know dialogue good questions, listening, active listening. Um, and the other second thing I would say is then you learn. You need to learn as quickly as you can. You you cannot be a liability for that team. So if you're doing something that's really difficult, and so maybe there's a standard that, uh, you know, this team all, all we ha always have to maintain, you better read that standard cover to cover, and you better understand it because you need to be not be a liability for that team. So we, um, in the Navy, um, we had an expression, if you were uh, not qualified for, for submarine operations, you were called a nub, and a nub is a non-useful body, and you don't want to be a non-useful body on a submarine. And so what I encourage leaders, young leaders do, is don't be a nub, uh, be uh, competent in your craft. So if you are not competent, get competent. That means you're going to spend a lot of extra time reading uh, and getting up to speed so that your team sees that you're working hard to learn your craft and to be capable so you're not a liability. And then I would say the third thing is this, and it's really essential, is that there are certain things that only the leader can do, and you need to do those things. And so, for example, I was a young leader, right? And I didn't know the, the, the ship like they knew it. I didn't know the systems like they did. But I, need to, I needed to make sure that they were taken care of, that 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 my bosses knew that the needs of my team, whether it's parts, whether it's time off, whether it's uh, um, you know uh, maybe they having a pay issue that I need to resolve, I took care of my team, and only the leader can do that. So do the things that only a leader can do, uh, and then work your butt off to learn your craft, and then I would say be really respectful and listen and learn from your experienced professionals. If you do that, I think. You're going to get a lot. You're going to. They're going to. They're going to learn to respect you. You're going to gain respect by those things. And the thing is, you can't come in and demand respect. And I saw a lot of that with some officers would come on board, and they would say, "You know, I'm I'm the officer. I'm in charge." And when you do that, you're not in charge. <laughs> they they were not going to listen to you. So, but if you are respectful and you really do um, defer to their expertise, you learn really fast and you do your job well then I think they're going to, you're going to earn that respect over time. 
And this is such an important piece, earning the respect. I, I want to dive deeper into that. Um, what else would you recommend in terms of earning trust and respect as a leader? What what would be some reflections, uh, maybe some unsexy ideas <laughs> that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because I, I as, as I as I mentioned earlier, the, these five years I spent underwater, you know, on on a submarine really, uh, you know, gave me a good firm foundation for all the things I did in the rest of my career. But one of the things that that really stood out for me is that on a submarine at sea, we spend long hours on watch working with these uh, with with the people that work for us. Right. So we stand watch. We we really get to know each other. So, for example, one of the duty stations is engineering officer of the watch. And so I would stand watch with four other operators and we would operate the reactor for six hours at a time. And we do this every day for 110 days. Well, guess what? I knew everything about my people and they knew everything about me, right? So we had deep, intimate knowledge of each other. We are very familiar with each other. So when it came time to lead them, I knew their quirks. I knew their hangups. I knew what bothered them. I knew, um, you know, their pet peeves or what have you. So I was able to customize my approach to each individual that it worked for me because I really knew them. And so when I came into the uh, when I came into the corporate world, I spent 22 years working in the corporate world. I real I realized that that was sort of like a secret, like a secret superpower that nobody had. Like I noticed that the other managers didn't get to know their team and they and didn't let them get to know them. They were the guy in the corner office and they were, you know, I'm in charge and, and uh, I got a fancy title and I was just the opposite. I spent time on the shop floor. I, 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 I every day I'd walk around, I'd talk to people, get to know them, uh, let them get to know me. Um, and I think that really establishing those relationships and uh, really helped, you know, build this two-way communication between my team members such that they knew me, they knew they could trust me, they knew who I was. And one of the things that's interesting, if you do that over time, even if you screw up, which you will do as a leader, you get a little bit of grace because they know you and they and they trust you. And you've you've been a person of your word for 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 month after month and year after year. And so when you do screw up, they give you a little bit of grace. And I noticed that, you know, some managers who are, uh, let's just say for the nice uh, they're jerks. Right. And they're they think that they're all that, you know, they're very um high ego managers that want to be addressed in certain ways. And they want, they, you know, they, they're, they're above their people. Uh, when they screw up, it's a big laugh fest. You know, everybody laughs when, when those kind of bosses screw up because no, they, nobody has their back because they don't, they haven't built that uh, rapport. So, you know, spending all those hours, you know, with my people uh, under the ocean, that to me was like, that's normal. That's the, that's the way a leader needs to lead. And I think that's just a normal approach. I'll give you an example. So my first factory I ran, I was 32 years old and um, I would do this thing called Fridays on the floor. So every Friday I would work from, from the morning, eight in the morning till noon, I would, I would, I would work on the shop floor in a different area of the factory. So every month I would, work, so this was the, the uh, first Friday of every month, every month I would go different place on the shop floor. And um, and I would I would spend time learning the process, meeting with the team, you know, and just just doing the work that they do. And I learned so much about the, the challenges and problems that we had on the shop floor. But I also got to know my team and they got to know me. But one of the things that's interesting is um, I started sharing this with my management team. I'm like, 
you guys wouldn't believe this, but the procedures are all messed up over here. They don't have the right tools over here. Uh, this, this guy is always working overtime because he's not getting, um, because we're not getting the materials quick, quick enough to him in the day. I, I, I basically discovered all these un, uh, uh, these secret problems that we had in our factory. Uh, the hidden factory sometimes it's called. And, um, and my team didn't get it. My management team were like, we don't understand it. We don't get it. And I was like, all right, here's the deal. We're doing Fridays on the floor instead of just me every, we're, we're all going. So we started doing with the entire management team going out first Friday of every month, going out there. And then we would come back to the conference room and we'd talk about what we learned. And it was incredible what everybody was just, the, the excitement level increased, uh, the passion towards trying to fix problems on the shop floor. And uh, it, it really, the relationships built between us as a management team, but also between the management team and the workers, they saw that the management team cared and they were spending physical time there. And then the other thing is we kept an action list of the things that we said had to be done and we were getting those things done. Every month we review, where do we go? Where, where we, and so the, 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 the shop floor employees saw that it, suddenly management cared. Suddenly they're present. Suddenly they're fixing longstanding problems. And guess what? All the things that you measure in a factory got better. So our productivity increased, our overtime went down, our output went way up, our, our profit uh, profit levels got to, re we got record levels of, of performance. And then we ended up getting more and more sales because of it, because we were performing, like on-time delivery was very, very high. And so we got more orders. So my, this business just took off, it exploded. And so you know, it was just interesting through just engaging with employees and, and learning from employees and listening to employees. Uh, you know, we were able to just turn that business into a profit machine. And I remember, too, because a lot of people in corporate were trying to figure out what we did. Like, what's your secret? And and I really struggled. I, I, I had no idea what my secret was. I I, said, I I remember saying, I don't know. I mean, I I said, it's not me. It's the people they've they've got. They get it. And they're working hard to to fix it, but it really was about being present and 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 just almost like that back to the submarine, spending time with your people, getting to know them, getting to know where their issues are, and leading each people individually. And I think that really stood out as the secret, if it was a secret. But it was just getting people engaged and um, and and really, yeah. I think I think we we struggle with engagement in most companies today, and I think especially now, even with remote work, it's probably engagement levels probably dropping. I haven't seen the latest, but um, but I think a lot of times people are not engaged at work because their management is not engaged. They don't even know who their managers are. They're in some fancy corner office someplace and they're busy all the time and they never see them. So they just, you know, they clock in, they do their jobs and they go home. So I think I think that um, being present and really engaging with employees is a great way to get some amazing performance. And it's not rocket science. I was literally literally getting goosebumps when you shared the the strategy, the practice that you you had, um, and as you said, bringing people together, caring for people, showing up, and doing what you commit to do, but mm. but showing that you care. Um, you know, we had the the president, the former president of Starbucks, uh, Howard Bihar, exceptional leader. He was a guest on a podcast twice. And he shared uh, this story, which is kind of connected, where uh, he, I think he retired at some point, and uh, a couple of years later, they had to bring him back. Yeah. Uh, the, the culture was suffering. And, uh, and he was trying to figure out what to do. So he came, 
came up with this plan. He he went to every department and 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 said, uh, "I need you guys to figure out how you, your department is going to make this amount of money to create value for the company." I don't remember the exact number, but it was quite a stretch goal. And people were complaining, and people were like, "Yeah, but what is this?" But but he had this intention. In mind. I want I want them to have a villain. I want to be the villain. Mm. It's okay, but I want to get them to work hard and go through challenges together so they can come together and the culture is no longer about me it's about we so so he he set them up <laughs> it was not about the money he didn't care about the, the numbers he cared about bringing back this culture of collaboration and trust and care and and it worked at the end of the day it worked uh, i don't know if all departments managed to achieve the goals but it's not the point the point was they they found a way to go together because they were going through challenges and they built this trust. And I actually wonder if, if you ever intentionally set your people up for, you know, sort of like some challenging goals or some like difficulties with the purpose for them to, to come closer together. Well, you know, it's interesting. I tell a story in my second book because it really resonated with me in terms of a leader that did that too. I, now I didn't do it. Um, but I learned a lesson from another leader that I, I put in my toolbox, and it's exactly that. Um, so we had a, uh, I was running a business that was very successful, a different business than the one I was just talking about, very successful. We had about 60 to 70% market share. So in this particular product, we were, we were killing it. Um, we, were, we had grown the business, more than doubled the business since I'd been there. So we were killing it. Life was good. Um, I was fat, dumb, and happy. Uh, and uh, we had a new boss show up. So it came from the competition, and he didn't even spend any time learning about my business. He called me down to headquarters. He said, you need to fly down to headquarters to meet, and I thought, that's kind of weird. Usually a, a boss flies into the factory and gets to meet you know, the team and everything, but he's like, wanted me personally to fly down. And so I flew down. He wanted me to present the business. I presented the business, showed him the growth, all the great stories I had you know, all, you know, the, the customer feedback. I mean, I, I was, I was killing it. Um, I was a very successful leader and I shared all that with him. And he said, he said, this is no good. He said, what do you, what can you do to double your business? I go, what? He said, what can you do to double your business? I said, we already have, we have 70% market share. There's no doubling of the business. This is who we are. We, maybe we can grow another 10% because I think my growth plan was like about 10% growth. And he's like, I said, he said, now he said, I want you to come back in a month with a plan to double your business. And I thought, what a jerk. I mean, this, I, I am the top guy in this company. I've, I, I have proven that I know what the hell I'm doing. And you're telling me I got to double my business. And I remember taking that back to our team and uh, saying, that, well, we got to come up with a plan to double the business. And, and it was, we all, they all reacted the same way I did. Ah, that that jerk. What, what do you think? He didn't even know our business. He hadn't even showed up here. Isn't no, we're, we're amazing. We, we know exactly what we're doing. Uh, and then, you know, we spent a lot of time being mad and then we spent some time thinking about, well, what, how could we do it? I mean, is it possible with your 70% market share? How do you grow? And then our marketing manager, I remember he said, well, he goes, maybe we're thinking about the business differently. So we're we we're thinking about this product line, and that's the way we're very successful in. But there's a lot of other product lines that are very similar that do the same thing. Instead of being in this business, maybe we're in this business, this bigger, broader business. 
And that's when the light bulb went off. We're like, then when we, and they said, well, how big is that market? And then how much is our market share? Well, when we did that, we were like 10% market share. When we looked at the broader business overall and we were like, oh, that sucks. And it was like, you know, we, so we put together a plan to move into this adjacent business, uh, which was called sensors. So we, we developed, we put better, put together uh, a business plan to develop a line of sensors that would do similar to what our current product did, but, but, um, and it was actually an emerging market and it would give us the opportunity to, to, to grow uh, without, you know, we, we weren't capped with market size, right? There was a big growth potential. So we put together a plan, we presented it to the, to the, to the new boss. He's like, do it. What do you need for money? And he gave us the funding to do it. And we did it. We doubled that friggin' business. And, uh, and and the thing is, it took us a while. I mean, it took us four years to do it, five years. But the thing is, I don't think he really knew there was a way to double the business. I, I think he didn't, and he didn't have an answer to how to do it. What he did was he challenged us to come up with a plan and he made us think differently about our business. And so sometimes as leaders, we've got to ask, we've got to challenge our teams, even if we think in our minds, we're like, eh, this is a dumb ask, but how do you double your business? How do you, how do you get? So especially the people that think they're very successful, how do you challenge them to do something they, they can't, they don't really believe in? And, and I tell you what, that, that boss, I, I still think is one of the most remarkable, um, ways that he led the business. Cause I, I really got pissed off at when he asked when I really was offended that he asked me to double the business, but we ended up doing it and he supported us through that. And so I think it was a brilliant move by a leader. What an amazing move, man. Um, <laughs> what an amazing move. I mean, he did not tell you here's a strategy go implement. He, yeah. he went and he asked you a great question, uh, a question that will expand your perspective. And, and once you and the rest of the team, came up with it instead of him pushing you this strategy you came up with it maybe he wasn't sure if it's going to work but he knew that you're going to put your all your heart in it and you're going to learn and you're probably going to pivot but what a great leadership move man yeah, <laughs> Thank you for yeah. Sharing. it was funny because i started when i started that business it was like a 35 million dollar business and then when i left we were 140 million that's that's what he he led us to and, it, and you know i had i had I had grown it up to a certain point, just sort of organically, but he got me thinking differently to take it to the next level. So I think that's a great, um, great story. And again, uh, sometimes leaders don't have to have all the answers, but they have to have great questions. And I think great questions can lead to really interesting results. And I love the fact that, I mean, again, we, we're so often as leaders, we just want to take control and lead and show the direction and have the team go with us. But there's so much opportunity when you ask the question and, and you get your people to lead. Yeah. And you're just yeah. more like on the, on the sideline, just kind of guiding them and, uh, and supporting them. But, but they're the ones that make the choices. They make their own mistakes and they grow and learn. And of course, sometimes short term that you're like, oh, I can do it better. I can see it. <laughs> I don't have time. But uh, but when you invest in your people, they grow as leaders and and they see things that you don't see. Yeah. They see it from yeah. a different angle. Yeah. I, I really like, you know, and again, 
I, you know, the, the idea of just as a manager, you know, like being in that room with my team, I remember saying, you know, we got to have a plan. We have to, how do we double the business? And just being quiet enough to hear the marketing manager just go, I think I have an idea. And you're just like, as a leader, you can't stomp on that. You're like, okay, let's hear it. And when he said it, as soon as he said it, we all went, oh yeah, that's it. (laughs) You know? And so I think we have to be quiet enough to allow our people to surprise us you know, uh, with, with things that we never even considered. And I think that that's a, my hat's off to, to that guy that just sort of said, Hey, what about this? And I think that, and, and me being the leader saying yes. And then me presenting it to my, my bosses and said, here it is. And you think about that person, right? That marketing manager came up with ideas like, Holy cow, my boss backed me, his boss backed me. And now we're doing the plan that I kind of came up with Think about how valuable they feel, you know, how proud they are. They go home and tell their wives and their kids and, you know, like, look what I did, you know. And so it's their their idea comes to life. It's not my idea. So I, th- I think it's really brilliant. I, I, I listened to your book. And by the way, everybody needs to get a copy of, uh, of Joe's books. Um, specifically, I listened to All in the Same Boat. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I have a few notes and I just want you to comment sure. on them. Uh, sure. Well, I, I just had some notes, so so you have to kind of elaborate. But but I wrote down uh, something that you were sharing as learning, which was uh, the questions: what's going well, what's going mm. wrong, and if you are in my shoes, what would you change first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something I do when I take over a new business, and I haven't done it in a while. I've been running my business for seven years now, but when I was with corporate, I sort of. I was the guy who turned around businesses. So they would always send me to like the struggling business. And so I'd show up and, and, uh, but that's one of the things I did is meet with as many people as possible. And I would ask those three questions, what's going well, what's not working well here. And if you're in my shoes, what would you do first? What are the first thing you would do? And what I would do is take really good notes. And what I found was there was always like, um, everything would coalesce around two or three different ideas. And so, it was pretty easy. The, the, it was basically the people telling me what needs to happen, even though I was brand new as a leader. And so, um, you know, in those early days when I'm still getting to know the people, I would implement some of those ideas from from the group. So as I as I have an opportunity to meet with everybody, review all the notes, there might be two or three things that that I can easily attack. And one of the things that's interesting is that uh, it sends the message that the bo- there's a new boss. Number one. Number two is um, he or she is listening. And number three is he or she is taking action on the things that we're worried about. And I think when you do that early on, it's a great way to show that you care and that you're listening and that you're going to be an engaging manager. So just a simple thing I do. I really teach, uh, especially as a new leader, um, you know, coming into a new, even if you're an experienced leader coming into a new organization, it's a great thing, great set of tools, just three questions, and you really learn a lot and it helps you engage. It's almost like what consultants do. You know, it's funny because it's probably like what consultants do. They show up and say, what's working, what's not working, what would you fix? And then they make the list of action items, they give it to management and they get a million bucks. You know, well, you don't need that. You don't need a consultant if you do this kind of effort yourself. You actually ask the people. Uh, and I think it's one way to learn really quickly about what to do in those early days. And I'll assume that's also something you recommend to leaders, not necessarily new leaders, but uh, people who are managing people, entrepreneurs, if they are not, if they haven't done anything like that, because 
we are so busy running the business, right? Would yeah, that be something yeah. you recommend to people as well to to make their one-on-ones maybe more frequent or yeah. just random yeah. conversations? And, and, and would you recommend that as well? Yeah, it's a great time to do resets. Um, you know, I mean, I think <laughs> this might sound weird, but um, I found myself, especially as running my own business, is that every once in a while I got to fire myself. I got to get rid of myself. I got to get rid of the way I'm thinking about the business. And I think that we need to do this often. And one way we can fire ourselves is to have those discussions, those deep discussions with our employees. You know, ask those three questions, right? What's what's so you might think you're killing it, right? And uh, but when you ask those questions with your team, um, maybe you do it once a year with with every one of your employees, and you start seeing all this like, ah, oh, crap, I'm not really doing a good job. I stopped having stand-up meetings. Uh, I'm not um, connecting with customers like I used to. I'm, I'm not communicating well. Uh, and so you learn some things about yourself and your leadership style through those three questions that you can, again, fire, you know, and you can even say, look, guys, I've screwed up and uh, I'm, I'm, I've made some mistakes. I've, I've got to I've got tunnel vision in this area and, you know, I'm, I'm firing myself effective today and you're getting a new boss and it's me and I'm going to learn the things that I just learned from you guys and I'm going to get better. And I think that's, um, I think, I think people like to hear that, that you're, you're listening and you're, 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 you're uh, reflecting on your leadership style and you're working to get better. I mean, it's, uh, you know, any, if you've been in leadership, I've been, in, I've been leading people for more than 30 years. And one of the things I've learned is it's a continuous process. It's always about continuous improvement. How can I become better uh, in, in the job that I'm doing? You talk about vulnerability, as I understand as well, how important it is in, mm. in, in leadership. I wonder what's, what's military, what's the Navy take on vulnerability and, and, and where is the, how do we find the right the right balance between showing up and being upfront, being honest, sharing how you feel and, and our doubts, but also not freaking people out uh, because, you know, what if somebody thinks our leader cannot get it done? He, I can't trust this guy because, you know, mm -hmm. how do we find the right balance? So we're vulnerable, but it comes from a, from a place of strength. Yeah, no, great question. I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier is you've got to be really competent in your job. Competency is really important. So be really skilled in your craft. So like uh, I'm in the electrical products market, right? So I am an expert in this market. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. I've been doing it for a long time. I go to conferences on a regular basis and I speak and teach on very technical topics uh, every month, right? I'm, a, I'm considered an in industry expert. So I am a, a master of my craft, right? So you have to be one end really good. And then you have to be on the other side, really humble and realize that you don't recognize, you recognize you don't, don't know everything. And so what does that mean? Well, you're working with your team, right? And something comes up that maybe it's an accounting issue. You're like, well, I'm a master at this, but I may not be an expert in, in accounting. And so that's when you're going to say, look, um, I have an idea of what this is, but you're the expert. Tell me, I, I really need you to look at this and give me your feedback. So, you know, admitting that you're not an expert in everything. And I don't think you can be an expert in everything. As a general manager, you're dealing with HR issues. You're dealing with finance issues, accounting issues, market issues, product issues, quality issues. 
you may not be an expert in all that. So engage with your experts and say, look, I don't know this. You're an expert in this area. Teach me, show me, help me understand this better. And that's where you're being vulnerable. You were where the people that are not vulnerable, they're saying, oh, I got this. I'll take care of this. I know this. I understand this. And they're, they're being fake. Right. And, and I think people see through fake really easily. And um, I think we cannot be uh, as as leaders. We can't be fake. We have to be genuine. And if we don't know something, we just say, I don't I don't know it. Um, help me understand this. Uh, but you better be competent in your craft. If you say, I don't know it all the time, then people are like, why are we following this guy? <laughs> right. So you got to you got to be an expert in what you're doing. You got to you got to you got to be getting better every day. But it's okay to say you don't know something for sure. And it's also about how you show up. Yeah. How's, yeah. how's your mental state? How's your what's the en energy that you're bringing when you deliver bad news and when you are sharing? Hey guys, I might need your help because this is something I'm not an expert in. As opposed yeah. to, oh my god, we're gonna die. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like yeah. Really, really depends on how. I think it's really interesting. You know, maybe that's a navy side of me too. But you know, we were always in. You know, here's the deal. When when things got really crappy, right? Maybe the weather was rough or something bad was happening with the the, the bad guys. Um, I noticed one thing right away. Everybody looked to the captain. Was the captain calm? Did they did he look like he knew what he was doing? And uh, or was he panicking? And I'll tell you this: my captains never never panic. They cool, calm, collected, plan, execute. Let's do it. And I think that. That is what, what what people look for when things get ugly is they want to see that the, the boss isn't panicking. Now, you can be panicking inside, but I think you got to keep it calm for the people around you. I mean, I know when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of unknowns. Um, we didn't even know if we could continue our manufacturing operations. Um, and so I remember just talking to the team, look, look, I don't know what this means. I said, but I will let you know as soon as possible. For right now, we're going to continue to operate until otherwise told, and we're going to keep doing what we've always done. And, and I think just keeping everybody calm, even when you don't know when there's a lot of uncertainty around, I think that's a good way to lead. Um, but if you panic, they panic. So it's not good to panic, <laughs> for sure. You, you probably have a lot of conversation with your captain. I, I just want to, if you ever talk about it with him, um, how did he manage to do that, like, like, and I, I'm talking about, uh, and if you don't know about your captain, maybe talk about your own experience, but what would be some practical sort of like nitty gritty advice on how do you remain calm in the midst of a storm and, and everything is burning and you know that, but but you got to be calm because yeah. you have to lead your team. So, so do you have any um, lessons that you learn from the captain or maybe from your own experience that you can share? Well, I think probably where it's most important to re recognize this is, is at least for me, at least has been my, my time as an entrepreneur. That's really where I found myself more needing these skills because it seemed like when I was with a big company, eh, things go bad, but there's a big company behind me and there's cash. And so we'll figure it out. Right. But when you're an entrepreneur and you're it, right. Uh, that's when it gets really scary. Like, there's no one back backing you up. You are you you're out there alone. And so I talk about the idea of you have to have a foot in two canoes. I don't know if that translates well, but, you know, two two different like maybe kayaks or canoes. Right. And so your one foot is in the 
being realistic with what's happening around and being honest with yourself with, okay, this is not good. Uh, this situation is challenging. And so being 100% realistic with the current situation your company faces in one canoe. And the other canoe is this unwavering um, feeling that you're going to succeed no matter what. And so keeping that focus with the team and the people is, is this, you're, we're going to succeed no matter what. Yes, there's a challenge. Yes, I'm going to be real with that. So you can't be like, oh, it's not a problem that we don't have cash this month. That is a problem. That's a big problem. But you also have to have this idea that you are going to figure it out and you're going to you're, and you're going to move forward. So it's having those foot in two canoes is a really important skill as an entrepreneur to be realistic with the present and then always having this unwavering uh, vision for the future. And uh, and I think the, the 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 unwavering vision is the thing that keeps people together when things get tough. John, you understand that you created a bunch of quotable tweets in this episode, right? I love this metaphor. And, and, and one thing that I'm thinking of right now, I just want you to reflect and, and, and you've been in the Navy, you've been on a nuclear submarine in the Cold War. You are an entrepreneur. Which one of those do you find to be more challenging? I would say I, I was surprised at the challenge of being an entrepreneur. Um, I, I thought that that would be easier. <laughs> I remember, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this story real quick. I was, um, I was a very senior guy at a big company um, before I left and started my own business. And I went back to some of the, my same customers from that big business. And uh, I showed up to one who I'd been doing business with for years. They knew me. They trusted me. At least I thought they trusted me. And I showed up with my new company, my new my new logo on my shirt and uh, asked for a meeting because I was meeting with another customer in that same town. So I show up and uh, as a guy I knew for, for years and I said, I'd like to like to talk to you about my new business and what we're doing. And he's like, it's like, no, I said, we, we, I, 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 you didn't schedule the meeting. Um, and we, we don't do business with new companies. I'm like, well, it's me. Like, we're, remember me? Like, I was just here, like, you know, six months ago with another company. And um, so I, that's when I realized, like, this is going to be harder than I thought. <laughs> so I think that um, I thought that my personality and my my respect in the industry would would get me a long way, but it didn't. And we had to build the brand up from the ground up. And, um, and so I think it's being an entrepreneur when, whatever plan you have, it's going to take twice as long. It's going to take twice as much money, maybe, maybe three times as much money. So I think that that's the thing that was probably um, the wake up call for me. And um, yeah, I mean, it's still even seven years in, I still, you know, there's some days I'm like, ah, are we going to make it? <laughs> so it's just tough. It's really tough. And I, especially you don't have that, um, you don't have that, uh, big company backing and that cash flow from multi, you know, global organization, which I always had in, in big business. So yeah, small businesses is, is tough. You, you're, you're one real big problem away from going bankrupt almost every day. It just seems like, I don't know, but. <laughs> and thank you for sharing. And, and, you know, after all, so many years of experience and, and leadership, uh, successful businesses and so on. Thank you for sharing because, we discussed it prior to this podcast recording, how much we as a society talk about the sexiness of entrepreneurship and, and empower people to be entrepreneurs. Like this is the, 
the coolest thing ever. And of course, there's a lot of benefits. You know, I've been running my businesses for now more than 10 years and and I'm really happy. I don't think I'll ever work for somebody as such. At the same time, man, there's days that it's like, you're just yeah. so confused. You're like, I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm this so, it's, it's hard. And and you beat yourself up. And, and I think we need to talk more about it because everybody beat themselves up. <laughs> you know, I talked to the, the first Bulgarian unicorn uh, company, the, the CEO and founder, Christo Borisov was at the podcast. Go check out the episode, by the way, it's great. Uh, and and he's, he said the first four or five years, you know, it's been just insane. You know, he mm-hmm. wake up uh, just to take a shower, go works early morning till 9 p.m. And they can't crack it. And, and he's stressed and overwhelmed and doesn't know what to do. And, you know, that's that's the part of the journey. Um, yeah. But but yet it's you only see the fancy titles of the new unicorn that's uh, been created. And you create this twist. Twisted picture. Do you, did you know that the the probability to build a unicorn? I saw it somewhere online. It's zero point zero 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 six. That's not much. <laughs> that's not well, much. that's that's why I don't. I mean, I, I you know, um, it's interesting too because you know, unicorns. It's, it's kind of interesting. To, I'll just say this little analogy here. Unicorns are rare, right? And when I was with big companies. We were, I'll use a different analogy, we were chasing whales. When we were a big company, we were chasing the whales. We wanted the big company, we wanted to get big, big accounts, big businesses, and we wanted to land these whales, right? And one of the things I found as an entrepreneur is there is so much value in, in getting the little fish and not the whales. There, you know, when we, what we found in, in a, my small company is that the whales didn't really pre- appreciate our value proposition as much as the small companies did. Small companies embrace us. They're like, oh, you guys are, you guys are easy to do business with. Uh, you answer the phone, the first ring, you uh, give us a quote within 24 hours, you ship my product quickly. This is the, you're the kind of company I want to do business with. What I found with the big companies, you, you build a relationship and you get your product qualified and then they throw you in a reverse auction and it's a, and, and a price-only battle. And so they didn't care about your value proposition. They just wanted the lowest price. And so that's the, that's the, the business I was in with big business for years, tasting those whales and getting beat up on price. What I found was I could eat really, really well with a lot of fish and not one big whale. So I don't know for entrepreneurs are listening in and you're trying to figure out how to, how to win in your market. Uh, don't go for the whales, go for the fish. And there's a lot of them and uh, they'll probably appreciate your message more than the whales will. Listen careful, everybody. <laughs> I hope you're, you're taking notes because there's so much, uh, so much good stuff in this episode. Um, since, uh, as you know, John, uh, me and my co-author, we're working on our, second book which is called perform in times of crisis and it's about the leadership in times of uncertainty times of crisis um i'm I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this and um, if i'm not mistaken the first chapter of your book was called run to the fire yeah um maybe can you can you share with me what does that mean in the context of being in a nuclear submarine, but how can we apply these lessons also to leadership in business? Yeah, it's uh, it's something I've really taken from my days in submarines and applied it in in business for for you know these 20, twenty plus years. But um, 
so on a submarine at sea, one of the most dangerous things that can happen is a fire. Uh, fire will, it can explode volatile material, it can asphyxiate sailors. And so we um, were trained as firefighters. Every submariner is trained as a firefighter. And you're trained to run towards the fire. And the idea is put it out when it's small so you don't damage the submarine and you have a major loss of equipment in life, right? So that's just normal practice, right? So for years, I was well, we, we would run drills and I'd run towards the fire every time dutifully and put out the fire. And, and that's just what I was used to. And then when I got into corporate world, what I noticed was whenever there was a fire, so just, you know, the equivalent would be a problem. I noticed people start backing away and start moving away from the problem, right? Because nobody wanted to be associated with the problem, right? They're all trying to manage their careers and they're trying to uh, look good for their bosses. And so when there was a problem, people moved away from the problem and not towards the problem. And what ends up happening in a lot of times, these problems inside companies get bigger, they fester, whether it's a personnel problem, a product problem, a cash flow problem, a profitability issue, whatever. If you don't address those issues, they're not going to get better. They're going to get worse and they're going to get bigger and they're going to burn out of control and they could permanently damage your business. And so one of the things that I teach leaders is to um, is this idea of running towards problems. So if you see something that's going to adversely affect your the performance of your business, don't be the person that backs away. Be the person that runs towards it and addresses it before it gets out of control. And so many business failures we've seen, you know, the last, I would say last 10 years especially, were companies that didn't run towards their problems. They let them fester and get out of control and burn out of control and eventually kill their, their businesses. So I think the idea of, um, I'll give you one quick example is I took over a business that um, I thought I understood really well. And um, when I started digging into the books, I realized they had very high warranty costs and very high customer concession costs. And when I started asking questions why this was, it turns out that um, they had a product in the field that was uh, designed to be used in indoor applications was be being applied to outdoor applications. So these uh, these parts were rusting in the field and failing. And so, um, and, and, and this was a known problem within the organization for years and no one had done anything about it. And so when I tried to figure out the best way forward was how do, how do we redesign the product? It was gonna be millions of dollars. And then, um, and then I also discovered that it, it, even if I did the redesign, it would be obsolete within a number of years anyway. So I made the decision to shut the product line down um, because it had been neglected, this problem had been neglected and it's starting to burn out of control. So I had to shut the product line down, which was a major thing for the business. And I ended up having to travel around the country and apologize and, and create plans for all of our customers, how we'd support them going forward. But we had to kill the product line because, um, because it had, it had a known problem that, that uh, was unaddressed. And it's just a terrible situation. But um, so I highly recommend leaders, if you have a problem, that you run towards it, not away from it, because it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and sometimes it could be a wake-up call for many of us. Sometimes this problem does not look like a problem. Mm. Oh, I need to have this conversation with this employee, but I'm too busy. I'm just going to, you know, and, and the fire gets bigger, right? Like it's not yeah. even a fire yeah. initially, but but you just leave it. Um and, you know, we had the, a guest on the podcast, Boris Krostiv, the founder CEO of uh, Remote More. Uh, and, and he shared, he he's a little bit obsessed, <laughs> but but in a good way. He has a spreadsheet and he's constantly having a big list of 
all the potential problems and risk and failure points like 50 yeah. or 60 or something he kind of estimates the impact and the probability and and trying to address. maybe it's a little bit too much for some of us right to do that on a weekly basis but at the same time is it right uh could it be that this could prevent so many challenges and problems and keep you sane right yeah um, and the last thing the last thing before we finish this episode that i want you to elaborate on is uh, one of your chapters is called develop a no escape mindset <laughs> yeah so i'd like to finish on that one yeah so um one of the things that's interesting when you deployed on a submarine you left with 155 crew they lock the doors and you go out to sea for we would typically go 100 days you know so three months at sea and so um a no escape mindset is to is to to deal with the issues as you have presented to you and don't try to run away from them. So, um, you know, a lot of cases we have a we might have an employee that's not working out. And so we want a lot of times we just fire them. Yeah, you know, let's get rid of them. Start over again. And, and you know, on a submarine at sea with with the hatches shut, you're not going to fire anybody. You're stuck with the sailors you're deployed with, which means you got to work things out and you've got to figure out how can I get. Um, the best out of the team I have. And so I tell the story in the book in that chapter about one sailor who was my worst performing um, sailor and he was a problem. Uh, and uh, he ended up becoming my best sailor because it just took me a while to understand what made him tick and, and how to challenge him to the where he was, you know, his situation, every time he got bored, he'd get in trouble. So trying to keep him from being bored and uh, make sure that he was completely engaged and uh, he ended up becoming my best sailor. And I think that we often try to escape our problems. Um, you know, like you might have a conflict with a colleague and maybe in a big company, you could disappear and maybe never see that person, you know, avoid them in the hallway, avoid their, you know, their calls. But in a submarine at sea, in those tight quarters, you, if you had a conflict with someone, you got to work it out because you're never getting away from them <laughs> in these tights. You're going to bump into them. I guarantee it. So I think it taught me to uh, work my issues out, resolve issues, uh, and then find a way to move forward um, and not keep these items festering. So it's the idea of embracing the challenges you have in front of you and not uh, trying to run away from it. So we couldn't run away from our problems. We couldn't run away from our conflicts uh, uh, at sea. I think it works well in business to, to, you know, to address your conflicts you know, head on. John, thank you so much. What a great way to finish the day. And be before we kind of wrap up, I would like, uh, first of all, to thank you and give you credit for anything you do, all the fantastic leadership material and content that you're putting out there, your books. I listened to that one. Everybody needs to get a copy. <laughs> all in the same boat. This is the audible version. You can also get it as paper. There's a couple more books. You got to sign up and subscribe to Deep Leadership Podcast with John Rennie. John, thank you so much. Just to wrap it up, where could people find you? How can you support leaders and organizations on their journey? Yeah, everything is at johnsrenny.com. And you can have links in there to my socials. There's, there's uh, links to the podcast. Uh, my books are there and I do articles, uh, blog articles uh, and what have you. So, yeah, it's a great place um, to to go uh, and learn a lot about um, about leadership. You know, uh, 
What's, what's interesting is that we live in a time where there's a lot of great information that's out there and it's free. So these podcasts, like like this podcast, I highly recommend you subscribe and share because, again, it's free and it's a great place to learn in our uh, podcast, Deep Leadership. Same thing. It's free. I call it Dashboard University. Put it in, put it on while you're driving to work every day and you're going to learn from these great leaders that have gone before you. Um, and that's what I try to do is get featured guests that have been there, done that. And we learn the lessons uh, from those leaders to how we can be better leaders. This is why we do it, guys, because we want on the on the weekly basis to get nurtured and enriched by all these leaders. And hopefully, uh, you know, you guys are also getting value out of it. Thank you once again, John. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Uh, subscribe to the episode if you if you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast. Check out John's John's podcast. Let us know what you think. We're very reachable on LinkedIn. And uh, have an amazing day. Hashtag keep performing. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to subscribe to my monthly newsletter by visiting stoeniankov.com and also learn about the Perform Methodology and the Perform Book, as well as our various personal and team coaching offers. Stay tuned and keep performing.